If we haven't met yet, my name is Nathan Stolp. I'm a student here at Flourishing Grace. And I have the privilege to uh, lead the Boiler Room, which is a prayer room we run every Thursday night right before midweek. And we get to uh, pray for the students here and in Davis County. Um, I'm going to read the word for us. Uh, today we're going to be in Luke 10, 25 through 37. And it's going to be in page 962 in the Blue Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have one right under the seat in front of you. And if you would like to stand with me as I read the word today. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit the eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by a chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You be seated. Nathan, thank you. Um, real quick, I promise I won't keep us here too long. But one thing I didn't get to say last gathering is um, to all you up here to my left, I don't know if you missed this announcement. This is um, the weekend uh, which is a weekend retreat here, kind of like in town. So these students have stayed in host homes. Uh, they, they have been um, learning from the teaching of God's word. They've been worshiping. Um, I don't think there was much sleep involved. I'm looking, does not look like there was much sleep involved at all. Um, but I want, you, I want you all sitting here to know this. Um, you are an answer to prayer. You are an answer to prayer, uh, prayers that were answered over, that were made over a decade ago. Uh, I mean, even when I began here at Flourishing Grace, when we kicked off Flourishing Grace in 2017 uh, and, and 18, uh, we prayed for this. And not just to be like, oh, cool, there's, there's a bunch of students at a retreat, but just to see uh, God working in the lives of junior and senior high students, which is a really cool thing. So I just want to say thank you for being here and just want you to know that uh, you may think being here was an accident, but it's not. Uh, you're an answer to prayer. So appreciate you all being here. And if you fall asleep, I'll forgive you. It's fine. Um, again, my name is Benjur. Uh, if we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Flourishing Grace. And before we dive in, um, I need to walk you through the last couple of weeks because we are in the third and final week of a series called The Pursuit of the Table. 
And, and the reason I need to walk you through the other two, it'll become clear in a minute, but two weeks ago, Pastor Josh, our, our pastor for preaching and vision, um, walked us through this idea that, that Jesus did life and ministry around the table. And in the early church, uh, when you look in Acts, did life and ministry around the table. It was, it was built on intimate community. The table was, was the center of intimate community and intimate family um, in first century Palestine. It was a big deal. And we've lost some of that in our culture, and we've honestly lost some of that in the Western church. And then last week, um, Josh walked us through um, this idea that, that Jesus has invited us to the table. Uh, he walked us through the Last Supper that, that uh, Jesus celebrated with his disciples, which was, of course, the Passover Supper, which is a commemoration of God's rescue of Israel from slavery out of Egypt. And during this Passover meal, um, he says, this is actually about me. Passover is about me and my rescue of you. And Jesus invites us to that table, um, not because we have earned anything. We can't earn our way to that table. We bring nothing to that table but our own sin and our brokenness, and, and that's why everybody is welcome. Uh, it, it's not something that, that we can, can work our way towards, but it's something that Jesus opens up for us. It's a beautiful thing, beautiful thing. In fact, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back online and listen to last week's message. Um, but, but one of the dangers is if we just leave it there. And here's what I mean by that. If we say, great, I love this idea that Jesus has welcomed me to his table. He loves me unconditionally, that because he died on the cross for my sins, rose again from the dead, and I'm, I'm welcome, I'm part of the family, bring nothing to the table but my own brokenness, it's good news because I got a lot of it, got a lot of it. And if we say not only that, but we can do life around the table with people who also are followers of Jesus, and, and, and we do this in community, and we have this intimate family, this intimate community, it's a beautiful thing. If we leave it there, this is what we have. We have us following Jesus who loves us and accepts us, and we are following Jesus with people who look like us, vote like us, have the same abilities as us sit at the same lunch table as us, sound like us, speak the same language as us, raise kids like we do. And you see where I'm going with this. Uh, honestly, if, we're, if, if we tell the truth to ourselves, this is something that the church and Christians have been guilty of throughout the years because we've just left it there. We've said, great, I get to follow Jesus and I get to follow Jesus with my people. But we can't just leave it there. And today, Jesus is going to challenge us not to leave it there. Now, before we dive in, I need to tell you where we're going in case the snow knocks the power out, you all fall asleep, whatever. Um, and this is where we're going today, okay? We've talked about this table. Jesus welcomes us to the table. We do life around the table with other followers of Jesus. This is where we're going today. You're going to need a bigger table. You're going to need a bigger table. And you're smart people, you know where this is going, so let's dive in and figure this out. Um, thanks, Nathan, for reading it. I am going to walk us through, so if you have that Bible, um, if you could keep it open to that uh, Luke passage, I think it was on page 962 in the Blue Bible. Um, we're just going to walk through some of this really quick and, and take a couple of, of pauses throughout this. Um, now, Jesus... Um, as he tells this parable, we know this parable. Like it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably, even if you've never heard this parable before, even if you didn't know it came from Jesus, you've heard the term Good Samaritan. This is probably one of the most famous stories Jesus tells in his ministry. The parable, the story of a Good Samaritan. Now, a parable is just simply a story Jesus tells to make a point. 
But we often divorce it. We often pull it out of its context. We think, man, what a great story. But we forget why Jesus told it. And this is why he told it. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the... Listen, I'm sorry. I didn't think of any good lawyer jokes for today. I realize that this... Sorry about that. You're going to have to make your own. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, this isn't just a lawyer the way we think of it. It's not that far off. But in our life, civil life and, and religious life, like we, we keep this separate. We've got civil lawyers, and we would never think uh, of them coming into religious life. But in early first century Palestine, um, in Jewish life, um, Jewish law was the law. You had the, the Romans who were oppressing them, but Jews were by and large allowed to live their lives the way that they wanted according to the law of Moses. And so this legal expert, this lawyer, was a religious legal expert. And he had tremendous say over what happened in the lives, both private and public, in first century Palestine among the Jews. And it could be, this isn't for sure, but it could be many lawyers, many legal, many, excuse me, religious lawyers also doubled as a priest in the temple. Like they would serve as a priest some of the time and the rest of the time they were legal experts. That's going to come into play in a minute. And this is a religious leader, and this is no surprise if you've read through the biographies of Jesus found in the New Testament, religious leaders often came up to try to trick Jesus. Now, it doesn't say exactly how he tried to trick Jesus, but what we see is being super polite, but Luke tells us, no, 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 he's putting him to the test. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to live in God's kingdom? In other words, what do I need to do to be in God's good graces? What do I need to accomplish? Where's the list? Where do you stand on this? Now, it's not that the lawyer didn't have his own answer, as we'll see in a minute. He is here um, trying to figure out what Jesus will say. And the reason why he's trying to put him to the test is he's hoping Jesus will say something that's either against the law of Moses or he will say something that is unpopular with the crowds. Like either one is fine for the lawyer. If he says something against the law of Moses, he can say, ah, heretic, like you're no good, we can arrest you, we know how to deal with you. Or if he says something unpopular with the crowds because they didn't like how Jesus was popular with the crowds, then Jesus' followers would kind of fall away and he wouldn't be a problem anymore. So teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? You're the lawyer. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Which is another way of saying, how do you interpret it? There's over 600 laws in the law of Moses. And, and Jesus isn't going to have him list it all. So the question, this was one of the big questions of the day for religious leaders, is we've got this whole law of Moses, and how do we boil it down? How do we interpret it? And this is what the lawyer says. You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, where is he getting this? Um, back in the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of the books of Moses in the law, um, this is what it says in chapter 6. It'll be up here on the screen. It says, Hear, O Israel. This is God speaking through Moses, his law to Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's, there's one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your head and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Like it's very possible that this lawyer was actually wearing this scripture. This is a very common answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. He's referring back to Deuteronomy. 
But then he adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this might be one of the ways he was trying to trick Jesus, because this is, this is like bread and butter Jesus teaching. Jesus tied the love of God with the love of neighbor. He said you can't have one without the lover, you can't, without the other. You can't say you love God and then treat your neighbor like trash, right? It, it just doesn't work that way. If you love God, it will be expressed through love of neighbor, Now, it may be that Jesus was the first one to tie these two together. It may not be, but for sure it was made famous by Jesus. And this is where this comes from. In Leviticus 19, 17 through 18, also a book of, um, of Moses, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. This is about conflict, which we know conflict happens in, in all situations. And so Moses, um, through the inspiration of God, God is giving through Moses this law about how to deal with conflict within the nation of Israel. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, I want this to stay up here for just a minute. The way that this was interpreted, they said, oh, I'm supposed to be, be, you know, have this conflict with my, my neighbor, these other people of Israel, these sons of Israel, my, my fellow brothers and sisters. Um, I'm supposed to behave a certain way in this conflict. And then he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and this, is, this is no joke. This is what they thought. Oh, I see. The only people I'm supposed to love as a neighbor are those who are the people of Israel. And this interpretation and this belief um, came down all through the centuries to first century Palestine. And as we'll see in a minute, the idea was that when, when God said, love your neighbor, surely he only meant other Israelites, other Jewish people. Like surely he didn't mean anything else. And we'll see that in just a minute. But Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. In fact, Jesus may know this is a test, and he says, okay, yep, this is what I said. You've answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. Now, maybe that Jesus was saying, hey, if you do this, if you follow God's law perfectly, you're going to live, which, of course, everybody knows nobody can do perfectly. Jesus was the only one to live without sin. But I think there's also something in the turn of words Jesus uses. The lawyer said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was all about earning. It was all about what do I got to do? Where's the list? What are the laws? Tell me what to do. And Jesus says, no, if you do these things, you will live. I think what he's getting at and trying to change our thinking a little bit is this is not just a command of God. This is where flourishing life is found. Do this and you will live. This is where the good life is found. But either way, the lawyer doesn't keep his mouth shut. There's my lawyer joke for the minute. The lawyer doesn't keep his mouth shut, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, okay, who's my neighbor? Who, justify himself, maybe to show that he was right, but also um, morally right. So I want to justify myself to see that I'm acting correctly, but I also want to be the one with the right answer. So I'm still trying to ch- test Jesus, probably a little of both of that. Now, here's the thing. We just heard how, how Jewish people in that day would say, okay, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but the question is, how wide does the circle go? I mean, think about what this question means. I've got five kids. They're all amazing kids. Um, I think most of them are in this room right now, so I have to say they're all amazing kids, right? Uh, it's hard to be a dad. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's hard to be a dad. And what if I said, hey, Brett, you are a great dad. I want to I learn from you. So we go out to coffee, and I say, okay, Brett, um, would you please like, give me some advice? I want to be a good dad to my kids. So how many of my kids do I actually have to love in order to be a good dad. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> He's got the right answer. But I mean, like, nobody's perfect. Is three okay? Like, that's passing? 60%? Yeah? Four? That's like a point of B. Thank you. 
But you see why this is a ridiculous question. And so Jesus answers with a story. He says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, they didn't just strip him because they were mean. Um, the most valuable thing this guy probably had on him was his clothes. He may, may not have had a money bag, but clothes were very expensive in this day. And so if you had some clothes, you had something of value. So they take what's most valuable, they beat him, they leave him for dead. And I want you to notice something really quick. The, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Okay, who do I have to love? And what he meant by that, show me the list. What language do they speak? Where do they live? What do they believe? How close are they related to me? Give me the list. But Jesus makes this guy completely anonymous. This guy could speak any language. This guy could be of any religion. This guy could be of any profession. This guy could live in any city. We don't, there's nothing to identify him because he has no clothes. He's beaten and bloodied. You can't even see what he looks like, and he's left on the side of the road. Jesus is making his point. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now remember, the lawyer may have also been a priest. And much has been made, and and if you've heard a sermon on this, you've probably heard this before, much has been made that, that the priest may have passed by because if he had stopped and helped this guy who was bloodied, if he touched blood, according to the law of Moses, he would be unclean. And certainly, if the guy actually ended up being dead, he would be super unclean for a longer time. And this guy being a priest would not be able to do his priestly duties. And not only would that be like a big religious deal, but that was his job. Like he got to eat of the sacrifices. That was part of how these priests got paid. That was what God set up in the law of Moses. And so if he's not able to perform his priestly duties, no paycheck. He's in trouble. And that may be the case, but, but Jesus doesn't give any sense that this guy is, is wringing his hands at it. Oh, gosh, I'd love to. I should love my neighbor, but, you know, I got my job, all these. No. He just passes by. Next, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, technically, the priest was also a Levite, but the priest was kind of higher up in the religious hierarchy. To be a priest, it was passed down from father to son, father to son, among the Levites. And so he had the priest, and then he had the Levites, which is a little bit further down in the religious hierarchy. And at this point, you say, okay, so the priest passed by, The Levite passed by. The people listening, knowing rabbinical teaching, like this was a common form of story. You got three things. You got this one. You got this one. This is the big deal. And so they're thinking, okay, priest, Levite, you know how you're watching a movie, you're trying to guess what happens? They're probably like, okay, this guy's just going to be a regular Jewish guy. Like regular guy from Jerusalem, he's going to come by and maybe he'll be the hero and it's supposed to be a lesson how we're, we're supposed to do these things. However, a Samaritan, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. This was a big deal. The Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. The Samaritans lived in an area north of Jerusalem, and when uh, Israel was exiled to Babylon, some Israelites were left behind to care for the land. And they intermarried with other people who were not Israelites. And so when the Israelites came back out of exile and they, they found them in the land, they found that these people had intermarried, and so they were ethnically now different than them, and they hated them for it. They hated them for it. And so because of that, the Samaritans do what you do when you're hated by somebody. They hated them back. You could have heard a pin drop when Jesus introduced this character. He came to where he was. 
And when he saw him, he had compassion. I just want to hit pause for a minute. Compassion. This word is very important. In fact, it's because of this word that many people through the centuries, as they've heard this story Jesus told, said, oh, I know what this story is about. I know, it's an allegory. Where's my honors English people at? Allegory, yeah, you guys with me? Still awake? Okay, great, you're going to do fine. It's fine. They said this is an allegory for Jesus, right? Jesus, man, we were the ones beaten and bloodied on the side of the road, and the Samaritan comes by, and the Samaritan is rejected by the religious leaders. They didn't want to do anything about that, but Jesus, who was rejected because he was Samaritan, Jesus wasn't really Samaritan, but the person in the story is a Samaritan, rejected by the the religious leaders, comes by, and he's the one who at great cost and risk to himself saves the person on the side of the road. That's us. This is just an allegory for how Jesus came and saved us. Now, because of the context, when we step back and we see the conversation with the lawyer, I don't think this is Jesus' primary purpose of the story. However, it's not not the purpose of the story. I think Jesus uses this word, compassion, which occurs a few times in the first three Gospels. Literally, it means like gut-wrenching that that when we see something, we are so moved, our our insides turn in a way that we have to respond in some way. Like it is deep, deep compassion. Just a couple of chapters before, this is what Luke says about Jesus um, in chapter 7, verse 13, when, when Jesus encounters a woman who was a widow, so she'd lost her husband, but it's okay, even though she lost her husband, her son was still taking care of her, her only son, but her only son dies, which was not just very sad for her, but it meant she had nobody to support her. Like, she was, she was done. Life was over for this woman, and it says, when the Lord, meaning Jesus, saw her, he had, there's that word, compassion on her. And said to her, do not weep. A few chapters later, when Jesus tells the story of the lost son, you remember the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. The son, as Jesus tells the story, the younger son says to his father, I wish you were dead. Like, I, want, I want your money. I want my inheritance. I don't care about you. I want to take that and I want to go live however I want to. And so he goes to another land, a far off land, and, and he spends that money and he wastes that money and he's, he's partying and then there's prostitutes and all kinds of things and then there's a famine and the money's gone. He's got nothing to eat. And he comes to his senses and says, my dad has stuff, but there's no way he's going to welcome me home as a son. So I'm going to go beg and grovel, and maybe he'll treat me like a servant. And so, so, he, so he does this. He gets up, and he goes, and he's practicing his I'm sorry speech. And as he gets closer, and, and he's like, my, my dad's not even going to talk to me. I don't think he's even going to go for me being a servant. But the father, he didn't know. The father, his father had been waiting every day, watching to see if his son would come home. And when he sees his son beaten by the world and his own choices and his own sin from far off, He has compassion on him. Friends, apart from the compassion of Jesus, this makes no sense. I want you to to put yourself in the place of the person beaten and bloodied on the side of the road. We were lost, no help to ourselves, nothing we could do. And because of Jesus' compassion, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for the forgiveness of sins, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, only because of that we were rescued. 
Without that, this doesn't make any sense. Without that, this is just one more to-do thing. It's just somebody adding another list of rules to the 600-plus list of rules. You've got to do these things if you're going to be loved by God. If you don't do these things, God's not going to love you. It's just adding one more thing to the burden. But if we truly understand that we could never accomplish those laws, if we truly understand that we are beaten and bloodied on the side of the road, and that Jesus, because of his compassion for you and his compassion for me, climbed up on that cross and bled for us and died and three days later rose again from the dead, and other than that, we have no hope, this makes perfect sense. In fact, apart from Jesus, why would anybody do this? Compassion. Unpause. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now think about what the Samaritan did. First, he took a great risk upon himself. Like, this is obviously not a great part of town. Right? This, he comes upon a guy who's beaten and bloody. Clearly, this is not a safe place to be. This guy shows it. And so at great risk to himself, he gets off of his animal. He doesn't know if the robbers are still around. He doesn't know if this is maybe a decoy. Like, maybe he's going to go help this guy, and, and he's just a trap. At great risk to himself, gets off of his animal. And at great cost to himself, he helps this man, uses his own wine, his own oil. He takes him to an inn, which may have been an unplanned stop, and he takes care of him and buys him more food. And then the next morning when he leaves, he says, okay, here's, here's a couple of days' wages. That's what a denario was. It was a day's wages. Here's, here's, here's maybe a couple of hundred dollars, whatever it was. Take care of him. And if, if it goes over that, listen, next time I'm through, you know me. I'm good for it. I'll pay you back then at great cost to himself. It's not just money that he had in the moment. He is, he is pledging future money. Like Whatever happens to this guy, I am in. This isn't just like a side trip. This isn't just a side project. He says, I am with this guy, and it's going to cost me this much now to take care of him. I've already used my resources, but listen, I am in in the future. Like, it's almost irresponsible when you think about it. I mean, when, when Jennifer and I, when our family moved into our new house a couple of years ago, one of the bathrooms um, really needed to be redone. And because my skills do not include those skills whatsoever, we, uh, we you know, got some bids and, and figured out some people and called for, for uh, references. But imagine if I told you I was going to do this bathroom and, and I was going to hire somebody to do it. And I said, yeah, listen, what I did, I just Googled you know, bathrooms in Farmington, Utah, and the first name on the top of the list, I called them, had to come to my house, and I said, this is what I want. When it's all done, just tell me how much it costs, and I'll pay you. What would you say to me? Like, Benjamin, you're an idiot. You're going to get taken advantage of. This guy knew that part of caring for him was he's going to get taken advantage of. How often do we stop or do we keep the fact that we might be taken advantage of from loving someone? Friends, I think... That's true of most of us here in the West. Only so far will we go. I've got to know where the finish line. I'm happy to help somebody, but tell me what the amount is. I'm happy to journey with someone, but not too far. I'm happy to forgive someone, but not too much. No, at great cost to himself, the Samaritan helps this man. It was risky. It was costly. 
and it was beautiful. I mean, nobody listening to this story uh, says, I don't want to be like that guy. What a jerk. No, when you listen to this story, something happens to our hearts. Something happens inside our spirits. Something happens where you say, yeah, that's the way it should be. That's beautiful. Maybe I wouldn't do that, but that, that's beautiful. What he did is beautiful. It was risky, it was costly, and it was beautiful. Now, as Jesus wraps up this story, he has a lesson, or a question rather, for the lawyer. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, I want you to know something. Do you remember the question that the lawyer asked? The lawyer said, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Where's the resume? Where's the application? Where are the qualifications? But the question Jesus answers with this story, the question Jesus poses to the lawyer is, who was the one that was a good neighbor? Who was the one that fulfilled the role of a neighbor? Not who's the neighbor that I have to love, but who is the good neighbor? And the lawyer says, he can't even get, remember how, how he feels about Samaritans, can't even get it out of his mouth. The, 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 ah, the third guy who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now remember, this doesn't make a lick of sense apart from the compassion and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. If this is just one more thing for us to do and, and to work up this on ourselves, okay, it's another thing I gotta do, and, and on Monday I'm gonna go do this, and I'm gonna do it that way, you're gonna exhaust yourselves. Because when we love people in this way, in Jesus' name, it is not our compassion. It is Jesus' compassion that He has showed to us that we're just simply passing along to somebody else. This doesn't make a lick of sense, and it's not even possible apart from Jesus. In fact, nobody would do this if they hadn't been touched by Jesus in this way. Now, what does this mean for us? I hope, I hope that through this message, and maybe you already knew this story, and you're like, ah, yeah, God's been showing me I need to help this person. God's been showing me I need to love this person. God's been showing me I've been uh, you know, taking away love from this person or, or putting up that wall or saying that's too much or that's too costly. I hope those things have come to mind. There are so many opportunities in this world. Like You don't need to go find these opportunities. They will come to you. But I want to talk about what this means in the context of the table. Remember what I said at the beginning. There's a danger. If we, if we say, oh, Jesus, thank you for welcoming to the, me to the table. Thank you for inviting me at no cost to myself. I bring nothing to the table but my own brokenness. Thank you. And we say, I want to, I want to, I want to live life with other people who have been welcomed to the table. The danger is that we'll, we'll just have people who, who look like us, vote like us, have the same abilities like us, believe like us, have the same jobs as us, our kids behave the same way, go to the same schools. There's a danger in that. There's a danger in that. So what does this mean for us? Well, I, I want to present something to you. By and large, and this is not true of everybody in this room, this is not always true of us, but by and large, when we hear the Good Samaritan, or we hear a message like this, or we read a scripture like this, our minds go to projects that are over here, 
And believe me, this is good. Our team went from Flourishing Grace of 15 people, went to India halfway around the world last month and did incredible things, served under the local leadership of the pastors there, built water plants, supported churches. They met with a virtually unreached people group. They walked through the slums of Mumbai and worked with women caught in the sex trade. I mean, like, incredible stuff. That is really good stuff, so don't mishear me. It's just that when we think of those things... They belong over here. We keep them at arm's length. This is, this is my life over here. This is my table. This is what I'm doing over here. And when we think about showing mercy and we think about helping those in need, and it's over here. This is not the way it's been through the centuries. When you look at followers of Jesus through the years, this is not the way that it's meant to be. Let me give you an example. In the first and second century, there were two um, plagues. Middle of the first, I'm sorry, Second and third century, in the middle of the 100s, in the middle of the 200s, there were two separate plagues that just about devastated the Roman Empire. And if you were a person of means during this time, during one of these plagues, you got out of town. You took those who were not sick in your family and you got out of town because they didn't understand germ theory very well, but they could see it coming. They said, man, people seem to be getting sick from other people who are sick, so we're out of town. And if you couldn't afford to get out of town, then you huddled in your home with other, other people who were in your family. And when somebody in your family got sick, you threw them out on the street. Literally, people were left to die on the street lest they infect somebody in the house. Except for one group of people. Followers of Jesus devoted themselves to, to taking care of those who had been thrown out on the street, taking care of those who were sick. Um, there, this was not like, oh, let's take you to this other project over here. We've got this location. The only option they had, they didn't have any power. This was before Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. There was, there was no wealth. There was no power. There were, there, were, there were no infrastructure. They just welcomed them into their homes. Dionysius, who's a church leader in uh, uh, the mid-200s, said this about it. He said, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of the neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and caring others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. This is the picture of what this looks like. Now, you might be saying, if you're a cynic like me, it's okay, you're, it's fine. I'm a cynic, you're a cynic, it's great. You might be saying, okay, this is a church leader saying this. Okay, can, can we really believe what he said? Well, well, Emperor Julian, who was actually after Constantine, about 100 years later, even though Constantine had made Christianity the official religion of the empire after these plagues, the Emperor Julian um, hated Christians. He hated Christians. And, and, and them doing these things annoyed him to no end. This is what he said about it. He said, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, meaning the Roman priests, meaning his priests, those who were in the, in the different temples and religions of the, of the Roman gods around the Roman Empire, the impious Galileans. Man, I love this. Jesus was from Galilee, and so Christians were known as Galileans. The impious, the ungodly Galileans who don't worship our gods, terrible people, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. This is somebody who hated Christians. It's like, man, they're doing too good of a job at this. This is the way it's supposed to be. 
Again, there's nothing wrong with going halfway around the world. There's nothing wrong with saying, man, what's happening in my community? But what I want to do is I want to focus in on the table for us. And remember, this is the bottom line. We said it at the beginning. You're going to need a bigger table. This can't just be about, man, I love coming to the table. Jesus invites me to the table. I've got my peeps around the table. No, we need to build bigger tables. And this is what this looks like for us, I believe, in this day and age. Yes, there's, there's a lot of projects that we can work on. But just like the early Christians just cared for those right outside their front door, I want to invite us to do the same. Josh has talked about this up here, but, but I think this is true. And, um, and so it's worth saying again, in 2021, Cigna did a study and, and found that 59% of men and 57% of women, so 59%, 57% were extremely lonely, reported being extremely lonely. And that number went up for those um, who are in lower income brackets, and that number went up for those who are in underrepresented ethnic and racial groups. There's a pan, an epidemic of loneliness in our culture. And it's right outside your front door. Friends, to build a bigger table, we just simply have to look for those who are around us and invite them to our table. This might be coworkers. might be making space for lunch uh, throughout the month with, with coworkers. It might be your neighbors right next door. It might be somebody, man, you don't even know their name. You lived there three years. You don't even know their name might be going over and introducing yourself. might be being at the lunch table. Um, I, I, I hesitated uh, telling this story but because uh, I don't want it to be like, oh, I'll look at Benjamin and his kids. No, 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 my kids blow me away, and so I'm sorry for embarrassing you, but I did ask them if I could say this. Around Valentine's Day, um, you know what candy grams are, where for your friend you buy candy grams, and maybe for your crush you make it anonymous and the whole thing, so you pay money, they get a note, they get some candy. Um, well, my two uh, junior hires and another friend realized that there was one group of people in their school that wouldn't receive a candy gram probably. And that was those who were in the special education program in what's called essential elements, who were kind of in their room the whole time. Many of them are, are nonverbal or, or have disabilities that, that keep them even from, from being in, in regular classes. And they realized, man, they're not going to get any candy grams. And so they pooled their money together. And not only that, they got their friends to write notes. So it wasn't just them doing it, but they wanted their friends to write notes for them and, and give it to them so they would be delivered candy grams saying, man, you are a part of us. Friends, you have opportunities like this outside your front door, outside your cubicle. Remember, it's risky, it's costly, and it's beautiful. It's risky. It might be socially awkward. Friends, to, to reach out to others in your schools, people who, who you, you don't talk to those people or you don't do that or it's awkward or it's weird, man, it's risky. I guarantee you, you will be made fun of. It will be embarrassing. It's risky. It's costly. And maybe in that you set money aside uh, to take coworkers out to lunch. Maybe once a week you find somebody who's like, man, I just, I just want to start a conversation. Or maybe you make room in your budget and you say, we're going to have Sunday meals and we're just going to invite different neighbors every single Sunday. Or maybe it's just making room in your budget for when you do meet these people. Listen, this is not either welcome people into your home as neighbors or work on projects for those in need. If you open up your home, you are going to see those needs. You think your neighbors are okay? They are not. 
You think those two cars in their garage, man, they've got it made. Listen, they are swimming in debt and they don't know how to fix their toilet. Friends, you open up your homes, you build a bigger table, the needs will come to your door. But we gotta make space for that. We gotta make space for that. May this be the kind of place, may this be the kind of family where instead of just coming to the table and having our own peeps, may flourishing grace be the kind of family that says, no, we build a bigger table. As we enter into a time of communion uh, where we celebrate and commemorate what Jesus did for us on the cross by doing what he asked, when he said, when he had his last supper with his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so we do this now. In a moment, we are going to gather around this table. Like literally, we're going to stand up, we're going to be in a circle around this table. When we take part in communion, when we take the bread and we take the, uh, the juice, what we do is we commemorate the fact and we say, Jesus' body was broken for me and Jesus' blood was shed for me. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, this is not the table of flourishing grace. This is the table of Jesus. So you don't have to be from this church. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to take part in that. Even if you're not, if you're just honest with yourself, you're like, I'm not there yet. That's fine. Just stay where you are. Because what we're doing is we're commemorating the fact that Jesus died for us and surrendering our life to that fact. But today, maybe today is the first time you've heard about the compassion of Jesus. Maybe today is the first time that you've said, oh, now I understand. I've been, I've been the lawyer. I've been trying to figure out, man, how do I get in? How do I shorten the list? How do I figure this out so I can earn my eternal life? But no, 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 It is because of the compassion of Jesus. Friends, that is why we gather around the table. Jesus invites us to the table. And all are welcome who would bring their brokenness and surrender their lives to Jesus. Um, prayer and hospitality team, you guys can come out and put the bread. Um, and while you're doing that, I'm going to give some instructions. So if that is you, say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. What we're going to do in a moment, you're going to come to the table. You're going to grab um, the bread. You're going to dip it in uh, the juice. And I don't see any gluten-free uh, elements, but I think we're going to have some gluten-free elements in a moment as well. If you're gluten-free, we can grab those. You're going to take the bread, you're going to dip it in the juice, and I just want you to hold on to it, and I want you to stand around the table. And once we are all standing around the table, what I want you to do is, I hope today God has brought someone to mind. Somebody who belongs around this table that you need to make room for. Maybe somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus, and you need to make room for them around your table. That you hope and pray will be around this table, because just as Jesus just as Jesus has invited us to this table, he is bringing people into your lives that he has invited to the table as well. We just need to do what Jesus did for us and have compassion on them. So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna stand. We're gonna take the bread, dip the juice, stand around the table, and then I'm gonna give us some more instructions. Does that make sense? All right. God, I thank you. I thank you that... When you saw me beaten and bloodied on the side of the road, not just by life, but by, by my own sin and my own choices and my own brokenness, you didn't pass me by. God, you looked on me and you had compassion. God, you looked at me and at great cost to yourself, you gave your son Jesus, who came not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God, Thank you. May we surrender our lives to you who have 
has provided life through Jesus. For that we are grateful. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may stand up, form a circle when you've gotten your bread and you've dipped it in the juice.